Um, I am grateful that Mark invited me to come and to preach. I know that he introduced me earlier. Uh, my name is Brian Rowe. I am from Rockwall, and I brought with me this morning my wife Angela, my two kids, Nora and Henry, my parents and my grandmother are here this morning because they live in, New- in a North, Rock- uh, North Longview, and so they came to be with me this morning. Um, we are looking at Galatians 5, and I know that y'all have been working through Acts, and you're seeing the Holy Spirit do wonderful things in the book of Acts, at Pentecost and um, other healings, doing remarkable things in, as the church gets started, as the word of God goes forth, the gospel goes forth. And I'm about to give some context to our text this morning, but as I read this passage, I do invite you to stand with me as we seek to give honor to God's word together. So we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, and I'm going to read through verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Church, you may be seated. I want to begin by asking a question this morning. What comes to mind when you hear the terms spirit-filled or spirit-led? As I mentioned, you've been working your way through Acts, I believe, reading about some miraculous experiences in the early church. And I don't know if this has been your experience, it's been mine, that there are some who might say that unless your life looks like the life of the apostles and what they experienced at Pentecost and in the other stories in the book of Acts, you're not spirit-filled, you're not spirit-led. There are many today who think of the Spirit's work in our lives as one that divides us into two classes of Christians. There are those who believe that there are Christians who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're Spirit-filled. They regularly experience miraculous things. And then you have your ordinary Christians. Um, In my own church, uh, we're a Baptist church as well. Um, This issue arose in one of our small groups, 
And it led to some heated discussion, some debate that I believe ended up being very edifying for us all. It was very clarifying for us as we grew in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit, and how God has given all Christians the Holy Spirit. We've all been baptized into the Holy Spirit. But I asked this morning, because there is division on this issue, what is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives? What Paul is teaching us here in Galatians 5 is that the ordinary experience of all Christians is to be led by the Spirit. And this is indeed a supernatural life. Did you know that? It's a supernatural life. And as we read through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, at first we might think to ourselves, this doesn't sound remarkable at all. Supernatural, um, love, peace, self-control, those are good things, but certainly they're not miraculous. But I do believe that's what Paul teaches us, that true love, true peace, true joy is truly the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work. It's truly supernatural. And hopefully we'll see that as we grow in understanding the depths of our sin and fleshliness, to use a term that Paul uses here. Hopefully we will see how miraculous the fruit of the Spirit truly is. Now, how did we get here in Galatians? Why did Paul start talking about being led by the Holy Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit? I'm sure this is a passage that, is, that you've heard before, that you're well acquainted with. But as we see in the context of Galatians, um, just beginning to refer back to the text, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul wrote the book of Galatians to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia. That he, um, Likely, he, he planted himself, and these churches were in great danger of embracing a false gospel. Church, are you all familiar with any false gospels? Maybe they sound right at first, they mention Jesus, but when you really listen to them, they don't really preach grace. They preach works. The church in Galatia was being led astray by what is known as these Judaizers. Judaizers who believe you not only have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah that we sung about this morning, but you also have to submit again to the law of Moses. Specifically the ceremonial aspect of the law that says you have to be circumcised to be a true Christian. Now, Paul doesn't shy away from telling the Galatians that this is a false gospel, that if they were to embrace the teaching of the Judaizers, they'd be embracing a false gospel. They'd be betraying the true gospel. For instance, in chapter 1 of Galatians, verses 6 through 7, Paul writes, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Most of Paul's letters, which he wrote 13, maybe 14 of them, have a much more encouraging tone. Paul starts out those letters by praising God for the work that he sees in their lives, encouraging them. But when you get to the book of Galatians, you hear him say, 
Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Church, would you like it if Mark showed up one Sunday morning and said, you foolish church of First Baptist Diana, who has bewitched you? Doesn't encourage you. You know something's going on here. It's not a very heartwarming introduction to this book. Paul wrote this book to rebuke the Galatians, to clarify the true gospel, and to explain to them why these Judaizers, those who teach Christ as Messiah, but also they have to submit to the Jewish law, he writes to them to help them explain why they are wrong, where they went wrong in understanding the Old Testament and how it applies to us today. Okay? So once again, Galatians, the Galatians were being led astray by a false gospel, by false teachers who don't understand the gospel. And so they're teaching a false gospel by adding the necessity of works in order to be saved. Paul is writing to rebuke and to correct them. Now, church, if we misunderstand the gospel, not only is our salvation in jeopardy, it changes our, um, our salvation, right? It also understands how we're going to live. If we misunderstand the gospel, not only are we going to believe wrongly, we're going to live wrongly as well. We're not going to be walking by the Holy Spirit. We're, what we're going to be doing is walking by the flesh, Now, Paul makes many important distinctions in the book of Galatians. He pits two things against each other quite often. And just to list a few of them, he tells us that if we are in Christ, if we are Christians, we are no longer slaves, but we are free. We are sons. We've been given the Holy Spirit, even. The Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. If you remember that glorious verse and passage. We're also no longer under the law, but we're under grace, right? Even in our text today, if you look with me at verse 18, it says that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, what does it mean to no longer be under the law? What does it mean to be under the law? Well, there is much discussion surrounding this topic What I believe Paul is referring to here is being under the law's condemnation. The law, apart from Christ, condemns us, right? We cannot be justified by it. And I get this because of the message of Galatians. If you look with me at verse 4 earlier in this chapter, Paul writes, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. The Christians in Galatia were being led astray to say, I'm a Christian because I did this, and not, I'm a Christian because the grace of God has reached for me. It's up to us, it's not up to God. But God is the one who saves us. Because the Galatians misunderstood misunderstood the gospel, they sought to live life on their own strength. That's what we're doing when we misunderstand the gospel, that it's a gift of grace Not only do we misunderstand the gospel, we misunderstand the way we are to live our lives. We live our lives only on our own strength, trying to earn our salvation or try to maintain our salvation by our own strength, by being good enough. Can we do that? 
No, we can't. We cannot do that. And we see Jesus confront many Pharisees in the gospel, don't we? You probably remember those self-righteous religious leaders who rejected Jesus as the Messiah and thought that because they were experts in the law, they were descendants of Abraham, man, they were right with God. They were God's favorites. They were going to inherit the kingdom of God. Did you know that the sin of the Pharisees can also creep into the church? Those who do embrace Jesus as Messiah, it can. And we see this actually in the church of Galatia. We see it when we begin to look at the law of God or the commands of God, because there are commands in Scripture. And when we begin to look at those commands and go, yep, I keep God's commands pretty good, so I'm a Christian. And even when we compare ourselves to other people, we look down on and think to ourselves, I must be a Christian if that person is a Christian and they act like that. They struggle with that sin. Maybe they're looking at those sins that I read through, some of those sins that cause some of us to blush, right? If you find confidence that you're a Christian when you look at how others live their lives, you're not trusting in the gospel. You're trusting in your own righteousness, aren't you? Even when we look at the list of sins and go, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. If you, if you read the works of the flesh there, and you go, eh, that doesn't really sound like me. I'm pretty good. If you, don't, if you don't think that you ever commit any of those sins, or that you do a pretty good job with them, and because of that you're a Christian, you're finding not, your confidence not in the finished work of Christ. You're finding your confidence in, in your effort, in your righteousness. You're being self-righteous. You're not finding your confidence in the finished work of Christ alone, the one who fulfilled the law for us, who kept every command of God perfectly and then died on the cross, the death that you and I deserved. Another parable I want to refer to is found in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Beginning in verse 10, we read, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. It was the sinner in this paragraph, in this parable, that looked to God and found righteousness. When he cried out for mercy, He was the one who left justified, made right with God. Not the Pharisee who looks at himself for righteousness, relying on his own works, relying on his own strength. He thought he was truly living a godly life, but actually he was living a fleshly life. A fleshly life. And church, we're called not to live fleshly lives. 
And I think sometimes we're living fleshly lives when we don't realize we are. Sometimes we look at those external sins that other people have in their lives and we go, that's a fleshly life. I'm, I'm pretty good. But fleshliness goes way deeper than you and I often realize. And this is where we come to our text today. There are only two ways to walk, only two ways to live. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground here. We're either walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, or walking by the flesh. And on our own strength, in our flesh, this will be evident by the works of the flesh. Which, by the way, this list of sins that we read, it's not exhaustive. It's not exhaustive. We find evidences of the flesh all throughout the Bible. But when we walk by the Spirit, with this will be evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, Paul uses this word flesh here that I've used, I've referred to many times already. He uses this word flesh to refer to our sin nature. Now, flesh isn't always a bad word. It's not always referring to our sin nature, but here it clearly is. He's talking about um, a sin nature or the remaining sin in Christians, because there is no Christian, this side of glory, who no longer has sin. I don't believe the Bible teaches um, that you can achieve this perfection. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I think I can keep myself from sinning. Can I ask you, do you think you love God perfectly? Perfectly. Do you think you love other people perfectly? No, that's God's standard. It's a standard of, it's a perfect standard. Now, there are two common ways, I believe, that people find themselves walking in the flesh. Even as Christians, we can slip into this. We do this. The first is by trying to justify ourselves from the law. And because I believe this is what Paul is really trying to get at in um, addressing the sin in Galatians. In Galatia. Okay? The second is by believing that there is no law. This can manifest itself in different ways, perhaps by atheists denying the existence of God, or others believing in other gods, really. They reject the God of the Bible and that what he says is true. What he requires is what's required of us. Okay? Christians can sin this way too by believing grace gives us a license to sin. Can't we? Jesus saved me, so now I can go live however I want. No, that, that's, that's wrong. Now, I want to talk about the first way first, trying to justify yourself according to the law. If you live life on your own strength, trying to justify yourself by your own law-keeping or rule-keeping, you are going to fail. Why? Because you are sinful and your flesh is weak. Also, focusing on yourself instead of Christ leads to comparing, I believe, comparing yourself to other people. Do you ever do that? Find yourself comparing yourself to other people? Maybe they're non-Christians, maybe they are Christians, but we compare ourselves to other people. And this leads to the work of the flesh. To use a biblical example, consider the Pharisees once again who might have appeared to be good law keepers, but on the inside, they were self-righteous, jealous, and furious toward Jesus because the following, he was 
acquiring. We see jealousy and fits of anger listed in verse 20. The Pharisees were clearly walking in the flesh. And Jesus exposed that time and time again. These men who were to be known as the law keepers, the righteous ones. Have you ever found yourself comparing yourself to other people? Perhaps you've had rivalries with other Christians. Maybe this is silly, but over who has the most success in evangelism, the most Bible trivia knowledge, or who has the most marked up Bible, right? Or who serves in the most committees? I don't know. Maybe it looks like comparing what church you belong to to other Christians. That person goes to the Presbyterian church. Wow, I'm a much better Christian because I, I, go, I go to First Baptist. We, we really get things right here. We're much more righteous. If so, you're walking in the flesh. Do you find yourselves being more critical of other Christians as opposed to being helpful and encouraging? Is it easier to be more critical of Christians than it is to be encouraging and uplifting, seeking to build them up rather than tear them down? If so, you're walking in the flesh. Do you delight when other Christians fail because it makes you look good? Hopefully I'm not just preaching to myself here. If you do that, you're walking in the flesh. Even Christians who have been given the Holy Spirit can walk in the flesh. Why? Because as I've said, there is still remaining sin in our hearts. This is why Paul has to command the Christians to walk in the Spirit. This isn't something that we just get to go on autopilot and we do. No, it's a command that we must heed. We must obey. We have to choose to do this. If we didn't still struggle with sin and struggle to walk in the Spirit, there'd be no need for him to tell us to do this. Right? Again, I want to say, do not look to the law to justify you. This is what the Galatians were being led astray to do. Remember, if you were looking to the law to justify you, it will only condemn you. There is still a law for us as Christians that condemns the works of the flesh, but it does not condemn us. Remember that glorious um, promise in Romans 8, 1 that says, there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Let's make sure that we remind ourselves that this applies to other Christians too. Now I want to talk about the second way we can live according to the flesh, right? And that's by disregarding the law. And this is the sin of licentiousness. As Christians, this often looks like thinking that because we have been saved by grace, we can just go and live however we want because we're covered. This is the sin of licentiousness. The licentious person goes, what's the big deal if I'm a little jealous from time to time? If I have some fits of anger? I'm not killing anyone. Do you notice how these sins are in the same list as sexual immorality, drunkenness, and sorcery, fits of anger, jealousy? Do those seem out of place to you? They shouldn't. Apart from Christ, those sins can send any one of us to hell. Consider a similar passage found in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, because in our passage today, it says that those who commit these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, this passage now in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, in it we read, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The people who commit any of these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. But yet Paul says, and such were some of you. God did save people who committed these sins. And isn't it wonderful that God has the power to do so? God can even save the adulterers, the drunkards, and the thieves. The jealous, the divisive, the angry. When you embrace the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and it makes you a new person. Gives you a new heart. Changes your desires. It heals you spiritually. And this is a a greater healing, I believe, than physical healing. I do believe that it is God's desire at times, in his own, according to his own will, to bring healing. And we see this in the Gospels. We see this in Acts. God doing miraculous things, restoring sight to the blind, restoring the ability to walk to the lame. He even brings some dead people back to life, doesn't he? But if we reduce our understanding of the miraculous, the supernatural, to those things, we are grossly neglecting the evidence of God's work in our lives. That doesn't mean when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, too, when he does bring this healing, this remarkable supernatural change, when he does this, it doesn't mean we're never going to sin or struggle with temptations. It doesn't mean we're never going to commit these sins again, but it does mean we're called to change. We're not to be who we once were. We're not to use our freedom from the law as a license to sin anymore. We're called to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, live in such a way that brings glory to God to show There is something different in our hearts that the Holy Spirit has done. We're called to live in a supernatural way, not on our own strength, but on the strength of the Holy Spirit. And one helpful way I've heard this is we are not free to sin, but we are free from sin. We have the power by the Holy Spirit to flee from sin and to live the lives that God has now called us to live. But how do we do this? How do we live a life free from sin? By walking, by the Spirit, by walking by the Spirit, by being led by the Spirit. We see this in verse 18 when it uses, uses this language. Or similarly in verse 25 when it says, keep in step with the Spirit. I believe that's referring to the same general idea here. And also by being empowered by the Spirit. So being led by the Spirit and being empowered by the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives us life. It is the Holy Spirit who's caused us to be born again. No one can walk by the Spirit who has not been born of the Spirit, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 8. It is the Spirit who gives us life, and it is the Spirit who bears this fruit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is not the fruit 
of our hard work. It doesn't say that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit who gives life and who bears this fruit in our lives. So now, I do want to ask the question, if walking by the Spirit means being led by the Spirit and being empowered by the Spirit, well, first of all, how can we know the Spirit's leading? How can we know the Spirit's leading? Well, church, I want to tell you that it's found in God's Word. How simple is that? In Ephesians 6, do you know what the Word of God is called? The sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Some people... I think, reduce the Holy Spirit to this weird understanding. They think the Holy Spirit is kind of like the force in Star Wars. This, like, energy that they have to tap into. Um, That's not what the Holy Spirit teaches us about the Holy... That's not what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person who speaks. The Holy Spirit is God himself. And how do we hear the Holy Spirit speak? Well, church... We hear the Holy Spirit speak when we listen to the word of God being read. We need to store God's word up up in our hearts. We need to be a good steward of the resources that God has given us to do so. We need to know God's word. We need to know his leading. This is why God has given us his word. We don't have to wait for a subjective inner feeling. God has given us everything we need to know in his perfect, infallible, and all-sufficient word. We don't have to limit the work of the Holy Spirit to the spontaneous. Is God going to do amazing things? Can he do miraculous things? Absolutely he can. Um, Part of what he does that's miraculous is by continuing to speak today through his word and continue to bear fruit in our lives Now, how can we experience the Holy Spirit's power? First, we must remember that this is a promise that God has given us His Holy Spirit. If you have turned from your sin, the Holy Spirit does indeed dwell in you. Find confidence in this. Know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome your sin. You can conquer sin. Put it to death in your lives. John Stott says, the victory is within the reach of every Christian, for every Christian has crucified the flesh, referring to verse 24, and every Christian lives by the spirits. We must remember that this victory is within reach. God has given us his Holy Spirit. We must remember God's promises. Second, we must pray for the Spirit's empowering. Do you ever do this? Do you find yourself asking the Holy Spirit to empower you? He's here he wants to, he, remain, he resides in you. Why do you not pray for the Holy Spirit's power as you ought? I know that I don't. In moments of temptation or walking through hardship, even in seasons of peace and prosperity, church, pray for the Holy Spirit's empowering. It's, it's a lot easier to be reminded to do that when we are dealing with temptation, dealing with hardship, but we need it just as much when we are going through really good seasons in our lives. It's in those seasons often that we're more tempted to put our confidence in the flesh, walk in the flesh. We we think we don't need God. Things are going all right. But pray in every season that God would give you strength and the ability to walk in obedience to him. Pray for the fruit that you see here. And pray that God would empower you 
to experience this fruit, to die to yourself, to die to your sin. And then, church, we do have to go out and obey God, to walk in obedience. And as we do, we may see the Holy Spirit bear fruit in us more and more in our lives. And as we do, we get to look back and see that it was the Holy Spirit all along at work in us, bearing the fruit in our lives. It was God who gives the growth. It is always God who gives the growth. Therefore, God gets all the glory in our lives. Now, church, do you see a tension here between our obedience and the work of God in our lives? There isn't any contradiction, although we might experience that, feel that tension, right? God is saying that the Holy Spirit bears the fruit in our lives, but I'm called to do something. I'm reminded in Colossians 1.29, where Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is toiling, but God is giving, God is giving the energy. <laughs> in hindsight, we get to look back and see I stepped out in faith, but it was God who gave me the ability to walk in obedience. We give glory to God in all things. That is um, the consistent testimony of Scripture. Why did God save us the way that he did? As we look at Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith, so that no man may boast. We boast only in Christ. Even the Christian life that we live, we are to live it in such a way in which God gets all the glory. So the world can see how good God is. Final question. How can we know that we are walking by the Spirit? Well, as we see here in our passage today, we see evidence when we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I want to direct your attention here to verse 22. And see how the fruit here is singular. Have you ever noticed that? The works of the flesh is plural, but the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It comes as a singular unit. I think this is important. Now, when talking about spiritual gifts, we read about um, this in the question today that I referred to. God gives different spiritual gifts to different people, to equip the body in different ways. There's a plurality of gifts, a variety of them. Each Christian doesn't receive the same gift. Some have the gift of hospitality, the gift of mercy, the gift of administration, gift of teaching, of service, and on and on. Don't believe the Bible gives us an exhaustive list of gifts of the Holy Spirit. But here, the spiritual fruit is singular, meaning that the list that follows comes as a singular unit. Different Christians may bear more patience than others, or be more joyful, be more inclined to joy, more gentle. But we don't get to let ourselves off the hook by going, well, my spiritual gift, or sorry, my spiritual fruit is joy. Yours might be gentleness, but mine is joy. So I don't have to worry about gentleness as if these aren't related at all, right? Each Christian needs to pursue each of these listed. We need to pursue all the fruit of the Spirit. 
If the Spirit is at work in your life, you should be seeing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I heard it recently that we're living in such a time in which apologetics um, has been easier than ever in a way. They were making the point that we live in such a world where there's all these different philosophies and um, beliefs, and it's really easy to examine the fruit of them. We live in a world today that I believe is hungry, starving for a community that is known by the fruit of the Spirit. True love, true joy, true peace. So one of the greatest ways that we can defend our faith is by embodying the fruit of the Spirit that we find. How appealing it would be. What a great witness it would be. Because we look, we live in a world that's going, that could go, how does First Baptist Church of Diana live that way? They live so different. Because they live lives of peace, of joy, of patience. When we live in a world that is trying to rob them of all of that, It is truly supernatural when someone can walk through a very hard season, difficult season, the great, a great loss, loss of a loved one, and yet still hold fast to God. Do you know that's supernatural? When the Holy Spirit sustains faith in the midst of incredibly trying circumstances, sustains a joy, it's truly remarkable, supernatural, when you see the life of someone who's been an angry person for 50 years, and then they come to know Jesus, suddenly they're not angry anymore. Not like they used to be. And now their lives more known by joy. Someone who's known as impatient, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, they embrace the gospel, and now they're known as patient. Supernatural when someone is faithful to a God. When the world is saying, trying to accuse God, might remember the story of Job when the whole when the when the when Satan is saying, God, Job is only faithful to you because of how you've blessed him. Did Job remain faithful to God amidst the loss of his family, all of his blessings? Yes, he did. It's supernatural. When Christians remain faithful to God in the midst of all kinds of suffering and loss, even in the midst of all the um, delight the world tries to throw at us, worldly treasures, when you remain steadfast to God and hold him up as your treasure, Christ is your treasure, that is supernatural. That is being led by the Holy Spirit. Maybe that sounds pretty unremarkable, but it is remarkable. Not in a way that I want to um, give glory to, to people who embody these things, but do want to encourage them and also to give glory to God because it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, before I wrap up, there are some today who have been Christians for years and years and still do not see the fruit in their lives that they wish to see, right? 
Almost 20 years ago now, a movie came out that I find to be quite delightful. It's a movie called Secondhand Lions. Has anyone seen that movie, Secondhand Lions? There's this scene where these two older men, these brothers, played by Robert Duvall and Michael Caine, purchase a bunch of vegetable seeds from a traveling salesman. They thought they had purchased um, seeds for peas, beans, beets, squash, and tomatoes. They were all excited about this lush garden they were going to plant and have, all the delicious vegetables that they were going to have, that they were going to enjoy. But as the garden grows, their great-nephew, played by Haley Joel Osment, knows something is off because all the plants he sees growing look exactly the same. They're all corn. They got taken advantage of by the traveling salesman. Corn is fine, but they wanted all types of delicious vegetables, didn't they? Um, they didn't get that because they weren't planting the right seeds. And they didn't know it. We're not going to see the fruit in our lives we want to see if we're not planting the right seeds. We're not going to see the fruit in our lives we wish to see if we are not walking by the Spirit. So I want to ask you as we leave, what kind of fruit are you seeing in your life? What kind of fruit are you seeing in your life? And who are you blaming for it? If it's what is found in the first list here, it is because you are walking in the flesh. If it's what you find in the second list, then praise God, because it's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. It's the Holy Spirit who has bore this fruit in you. This passage helps us towards recognizing the evidence of true faith. It's not enough to read that first list of sins and cross stuff off. That's not me. That's not me. That's not me. I'm good. Must be led by the Spirit. Right? The evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life is not just crossing off the list of the works of the flesh, but it's also by looking at the second list, the fruit of the Spirit, the positive fruit, and seeing that in our lives. Then a final word too. This passage does not encourage us to be little Pharisees who then hastily judge whether or not someone is a Christian based upon how much fruit they see in their lives, right? Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is patience and kindness. We don't want to be impatient or unkind toward Christians who aren't as far along as we are, who aren't as patient, who aren't as kind, as gentle, as loving. You wouldn't expect a young believer to bear the same amount of fruit you would someone who's been walking with the Lord for 50 years. On the flip side, you should also be concerned if someone says they've been walking with God for 50 years, and yet you see very little fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Right? So without becoming little Pharisees, are we bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Are we bearing them more and more, increasingly so? Are we trusting in the true gospel? turning from our sin, knowing this is a daily battle. You know, the sin of the Pharisees, they thought the battle was always out there. They didn't realize that there's a battle going on in each and every one of our hearts. We have to put to death the sin in our lives. We are far more threatened by the sin in our own lives than we are the sin of other people because it's our sin that sends us to hell. So are we trusting in the true gospel, turning from our sin, crucifying it, yielding, to the Holy Spirit. 
This passage shows us what true godliness looks like. Not a godliness that saves, saves us, but a godliness that results from God saving us by his grace in Christ Jesus. God's desire for you, God's desire for me, for all of us, is that we pursue the fruit of the Spirit by the guiding, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not on our own strength, not by the flesh. We cannot do it. 